Right, you ready? Aye, aye, Captain. I can't hear you. I said, aye, aye, Captain. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Who lives on a live ship? (laughs) Sailing on the sea. Can it? Blood luck. (laughs) Wintro Vestrit fits way better, though. Wintro Vestrit. Even though Kenneth and Winter both have double syllable. And a sissy boy wannabe priest is he. No. <laughs> Winter Vestrit. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. I'm Emma. And this week we're starting a new section of the book, chapter 13. It's an interlude, but it starts summer. Woo, love summer. Which means we are back with our slimy tangle of friends. (laughs) I don't know if I'd call them friends. (laughs) The mood shifted quite quickly. Ooh, I love summer to no. (laughs) You know what? I will give I will give them this. We haven't heard from them in a while, and I am curious to see what they're up to. What, you haven't read the chapter yet? Uh, you don't know? No. No, <laughs> no. but I mean, whatever. whenever it started, I feel like we got more. First book, we got more of the serpents, and I didn't like them as much. Second book, they grow on me because I've been with them for a few chapters. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, I don't really like you, but I want to know what's going on. Did you want to know what was going on with Malta the first time you read these? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't like Malta, but she is high entertainment value. So like, I don't know. It's very soap opera-y to read. So I get so excited to know what she was, what devious scheme she had come up with next. Fair, fair. Right. Well, interlude chapter 13. And as we said, we are back with Malkin's Tangle. And Shriver is reflecting on kind of what has been happening while we were not with them. They've been following the provider as we left off with them last time. And Shriver is saying that theirs wasn't a true tangle because while they've been following this provider, other serpents have been gathering with them to follow as well to get the food. But stray serpents who don't have a common purpose and don't really talk are not a true tangle. They're just kind of a gathering of serpents at this moment. Right. And even worse is that of these new serpents joining the group, most of them seem very beast-like already. They have the empty eyes. Right. Um, They're not really responsive in a way that is befitting of a serpent. But more heartbreaking are the ones who seem to almost recall who they are and what they are and yet can't and are leaning into the animalistic instincts. The three original serpents of Malkin's Tangle had fallen almost as silent as the newcomers. It was difficult to find topics that did not lead all of them deeper into despair. Trevor could dimly recall earlier times of physical starvation. Too long a fast could make anyone's thoughts become scattered and unfocused. She had her small rituals to keep herself sane. Daily, she reminded herself of their purpose. They had come north when Malkin had known the time was right. 
she who remembers should have greeted them. That one should have renewed all their memories and should have led them through the next step. But what would that be? she muttered softly to herself. Eh? Caesarea asked sleepily. And she says that they're anchored together amidst a grove of slumbering serpents and that there are about a dozen of the other serpents there. And only at night did they seem to recall who they were and their manners because they coiled around each other tightly as a tangle does to sleep. But that's pretty much it for all the other ones. Yeah. So she is saying something here to remind us, the readers, that they're also not doing well. That right. Caesarea, that Trever, that Mulkin are losing their purpose. Yeah, they are turning into the serpents that don't know who they are and think they're beasts, almost. They're, they're not there yet, but, I mean, as it goes on, it talks about how they're kind of losing their manners, I guess. Right. And they're still there. They're, they still know who they are or what they're doing, but... It doesn't really matter because you have to eat. Yeah. So do you fight over the food or yeah, like yeah. Shriver says you like Malkin does you for you stick to the old ways and then just get your food stolen from you by the uncivilized serpents because he refuses to fight for it. Yeah. So it's it's definitely an, a sad situation at this point. Things are not looking great, but we do have a large group of serpents in one place. And I do want to point out, I don't think they're still following Vivacia. No, I don't believe so. Because they're calling it a provider and saying that there is food being thrown over, which would be dead bodies. Yeah. And Vivacia is no longer a slave ship. And I guess maybe when they were going to Divi Town, Vivacia could have or would have had people dying still like just because a slave ship is freed doesn't mean that the conditions magically change for everybody on board so i'm sure there still were deaths but not the same amount that would be on a normal slave ship i would think and so this seems to be a different ship they're following right but they're all here together and shriver is asking the real questions what happens next even if they were successful what would they have been successful in doing? And it's really unclear if they would have known before their memory declined to the state it's in now, or if this has always been the great beyond, like what what <laughs> happens next? But Caesarea kind of makes a comment that they wouldn't have need for she who remembers if they were supposed to know. Right. And Malkin does not even stir. Yeah. They're all losing energy. They're all kind of at the last leg of their strength here. And everything is quiet. But there's a sudden shifting in the forest of sleeping serpents. With dreamlike slowness, a slender, verdantly green serpent wriggled free of the slumbering tangle and langoriously rose up to the lack. Shriver and Caesarea exchanged glances that were at once puzzled and too weary to be curious. The action of the soulless ones made no sense. There was no future in speculating about his action. Shriver lidded her eyes. Then, from high above them, came the curiously pure notes of a voice raised in song. 
For a time, Shiver listened in awe. Each note was true, each word perfectly enunciated. It was not the random piping and roaring any light-hearted serpent might indulge in, but the glorious exultation of one called to sing. She unlidded her eyes. Song of simplicity, Malkin breathed hoarsely. Caesarea's eyes spun slowly in agreement. Gently, the three worked themselves free to undulate to the top of the plenty and then lift their heads out into the lack. So we have this one green serpent who has been one of them. We don't know if it's been an empty-eyed, complete beast or one that was close to remembering things. Probably that latter group. But this one serpent decides to just sing. And they don't know why. I will say, I don't know if I'm misremembering. I guess I should have looked it up before we started recording. But so while the green serpent is singing, he is singing to the full moon. And I think in the beginning, there is another section where everybody raises their head during a full moon to sing. Something like that. Yeah. Does it say it's a full moon? In here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it doesn't say full moon. It just says he sings at the moon. Okay. And maybe that, like, the moon is described as, I don't know. Okay. I just didn't know if it was full or not. I guess I didn't pay attention to that. Well, anyway, I'm pretty sure there was another. Yeah, I seem to recall that too, though. Yeah, so so that shows how far they have forgotten their own ways. Because they're saying, this doesn't make sense. Why would he do this? But it seems to be a normal ritual that happened before. I don't know if you could call it a ritual oh, yeah. or just there under the light of the full of a full round moon. So, yeah. So I feel like then it's like a full moon song to sing. And that's probably number one, what drove the green serpent to do it years and years of doing it just unconscious habits, but also having everyone there it's i don't know it's just it's so delicately done because if you're just reading this fast trying to get to the next chapter find out what happens at the end like i normally read i definitely wouldn't have remembered that they had already done this and so i definitely think it it just demonstrates their loss yeah the subtle yeah yeah. even in the year the one year that we're following them so far it's enough to have deteriorated still but they don't know, and they that's maybe a scarier thought. I don't know. So they listen for verse after verse, word after word. The words of an ancient song of beginnings. In the old days, listeners would have joined in the refrain to celebrate the days of warmer plenty and migrating fish. Now they were voiceless, listening to this blessing, but fearing to join in lest they break it. So they are listening to this beautiful singing, and the singer was beautiful in its intensity, but there's nothing behind the eyes, and Shriver tries to avoid looking at him because they can tell he doesn't know what he is singing. Yeah. It's really interesting to me because it makes me wonder what the difference is to the serpents between talking and these like hisses and guttural sounds, because we know that... They make, like, I don't know, the humans and the live ships that have come in contact with him can hear them making 
weird noises, but I guess Vivacia specifically can hear them talking. Is that because it's not necessarily what they're vocally doing? They're all telepathically communicating or is this like an out loud talking thing? Does that make sense? Um, I'm not sure because the serpents touch her and she like shrieks and everything like that. And then all of a sudden she starts to get more of those memories and things like that. So mm. she could be remembering her dragon side of things and like understanding it. But there's so much of them that is. Uh, I, I really don't know. And that's maybe because it comes down to the weirdness of what a live ship is. Yeah. I feel like the serpents are actually out loud talking to one another. And they, cause they say muttered and replied and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the serpents themselves, when they're talking amongst each other are speaking in those hisses and whatever underwater, but with Vivacia, I'm not sure how she replies back probably telepathically. Mm. But, or through the skill, I guess it would be, or dragon yeah. magic. But she says that she can hear them speaking to her as well. And the other serpents say that this white serpent is asking the uh, the provider for food, right? Yeah. And she's not answering. And Malkin goes really angry at that because she's supposed to answer all their questions and things like that. Right. So. I feel like there's a weird mix there. I don't know. Okay. No, it's just a thought I had because they talk about how like the pronunciation is excellent. And I'm like, they're probably out there in the middle of the sea just. (laughs) 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 But like to them, it's, but you know, I guess that's like any language you don't speak. There's doesn't, there's probably not that huge of a difference between somebody going "Uh, uh," and Hello, hello. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't speak the language, (laughs) how would you know the difference? I don't know. But it's just something that came to mind. How spooky would that be if you're sailing on the water and you hear just one lone voice? Like wailing? Yeah. Especially with the way that sound carries over water. Yeah. Okay. It makes me think of, I've seen these videos of people who work on like crab shipping boats or whatever, or just boats in the middle of the ocean and they take videos in the middle of the night. It's pitch black. You can't see out around the boat really. And there's just these like loud wailing noises, which are probably whales or other sea creatures that are like near the surface, just making noise. And it's so eerie. So that's like what I'm thinking. This is supposed to be like this, like awe inspiring moment. And I'm just like, Ooh, that's creepy. That's so creepy. (laughs) Especially if it's just wailing and not actual speaking. But if it was speaking, that'd be way worse. Like if humans can understand the serpent words, that would be so much more scary than just weird wailing noises. True. (laughs) Who's speaking that loudly? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So beside when, when the three serpents are watching this singer, Malkin is bowing his head. And emotion is rippling through him, bringing a brief gleam to his false eyes. Very slowly, his mane began to stand out about his throat, his venom once so plentiful and toxic now barely brimmed to the tips. A single drop fell to sting ecstatically on Shriver's skin. 
For a long moment the night was clear, bright, and warm with promise. Save your strength, Caesarea advised him sadly. His music is beautiful, but there is no heart behind it. We cannot revive him. To try would only weaken you. My strength is not my own to hoard, Malkin observed. More sourly, he added, Sometimes I fear there is nothing to save it for. Despite his words, he did not move toward the green serpent. Instead, the three remained as they were, sharing in his enraptured song, but oddly divorced from it. It was as if the words reached them from a distant past, a time they could never revisit. And they describe that other serpents are kind of rising up to listen as well, some of them just looking around curiously to wondering if there was food nearby and that's why everybody moved or what, but some people are just kind of listening as they are. Yeah, and those ones seem to be struggling to try to remember why this seems familiar. But I also want to talk about how Malkin here, just in general from everything we've been seeing up to this point and what we see later, he is very devout in his belief of what a serpent is. It really kind of reminds me of Wintrow in a lot of ways because... He holds to that faith. Yeah, he holds to the faith, but not only that, he refuses to act in a way that would make things easier for him, like clamoring after food and fighting for food so he could survive, because that's not how it's supposed to be done. Right. And that makes me think of how Wintrow, on whenever he was first on board the ship, refused to do things or not talk about Saw just because it made others uncomfortable because that's what he's supposed to be doing as a a servant. And so I just, seeing those similarities is really interesting to see Malkin. I mean, Malkin feels a little bit more devout um, in that he is taking a harder stance, but also Malkin Malkin has more of a purpose and a society built to look to them for leadership, right? Yeah. And on top of that, Malkin is like, a million years old and <laughs> has visions of the future. <laughs> so it's a little bit easier to stay within what you know in that way, I suppose. But either way, I just thought it was really interesting because there's that theme again of somebody against what is normal, standing up for what they think is right and um, going against the grain to do so, even to their own detriment. So I don't know. I just find that really interesting. And then having Shriver as the main voice saying continuously thinking it's not worth it. We don't need to push and then continuously being wrong. I just really like that aspect of this. The serpent is ending his song. And as the last note rings out, Shriver can detect a change in the group that is watching this serpent because there's no provider to focus on as some of them were looking around for food. Everyone kind of focuses on this serpent. A silence that seemed the only correct continuation of the song engulfed them all. In that moment, Shriver became aware of a very slight difference in the group. Some of the other serpents looked puzzled as if they struggled to recall something. All kept the stillness and silence. All save Malkin. With a suddenness that belied his dimmed coat and shrunken girth, the great serpent flashed across the distance between himself and the green. His faded false eyes gleamed gold briefly, and his eyes spun copper as he wrapped the green. Malkin smeared the other serpent with what little toxin he had been able to produce, then bore him down in his embrace. 
Shriver heard the creature's outraged shriek. There was nothing of intelligence in that cry. It was the fury of a cornered animal given, given vent. She and Caesarea dove down, following the struggling pair to the mucky bottom. As they sh thrashed together, silt clouded and then choked the plenty. He'll smother, Shriver cried out in alarm. Unless that green shreds him to pieces first, Caesarea replied grimly. Both of their manes began to swell with toxins as they lashed downward in pursuit. Behind them, Shriver was dimly aware of the other serpents coiling and tangling in confusion. Malkin's actions had alarmed them. There was no telling how they would react. It was possible, she thought coldly, that they would all turn upon the three. If they did, Malkin's tangle had small chance of survival. And so Malkin is struggling to try to reawaken this green, this singer, to their memories, using his toxins to recall memories and bring visions to this green one, bringing him down and wrapping him for his own safety. And so he also is in closest contact with Malkin's toxins. But that brings him down to the bottom of the water where they could choke on all the silt and the mud that's being brought up. Yeah, I think this is the most interesting to me that they can breathe underwater because they're aquatic animals, but not through too polluted of water and the pollution being silt, yeah. but the silt is being kicked up by the fighting, right? right? So it's really interesting that it would be, you would think the amount of silt that would be in the water wouldn't be that much but apparently but it's enough to right in the source yeah, yeah it's enough to potentially smother them and inter even more interesting maybe is how deep down they go because Caesarea talks about glowfish so i mean maybe i don't know what a glowfish is <laughs> or maybe it's a made-up mystical i don't know but that kind of usually fish that glow in the dark are from like the bottom of the ocean where there is no light. So this feels like it is a very deep down drag yeah, out. They just fall there. I mean, they're giant animals. <laughs> yeah. It first of all, freaks me out <laughs> to think about. I already don't like thinking about things in the ocean, but it freaks me out to think about these big, like snake bodies wiggling around and just using their weight to plummet. Cause then how do they stay afloat? <laughs> I don't know. Not my business, I suppose, <laughs> for my own sanity. But there is this fight and a struggle. And Malkin is trying to give the serpent back its memories. So Caesarea and Shriver are fighting their animal instincts, but they're not animals, so they don't flee to cleaner water. So they fight those instincts to go and save Malkin and the other green that is wrapped with him. They wrap themselves around the two struggling combatants and are fighting for their lives to swim higher and higher out of that silt, out of the polluted water at the bottom there, to get to cleaner water so they can breathe a little bit easier. She felt she swam through a school of tiny glowing fish. Specks and streaks of color taunted her vision. Someone beside herself had released venom. It scorched and seared her, burning visions into her mind. Surely it was the floor of the plenty itself that she strove to lift. She longed to let go of her burdens and shoot up to where she could breathe. Doggedly, she struggled on. I want to ask a question about this. 
when she talks about the visions being burned into her mind, is that the feeling of wanting to stop or is it just separate? I think it's separate. I think it's the visions that the toxins bring on and any serpent has those memories, those toxins, which I assume is very close to silver ish, you know, because yeah. it's dragon essence or I guess serpent essence in this case, specifically formulated to be poison. Right. <laughs> so it dissolves and burns away humans, but they also have that like magic memory carrying thing. Cause that's what Mulkin is using as well to reawaken the green. Yeah. But all of the other ones, all the other serpents also have this. But Malkin, because he's that prophet, is just so much more potent and has so much more clarity to his visions, is mm. what I would guess. So then do you think the way it works, if we had to guess, is that the serpents use the poison to instill specific feelings or memories on people? Like, it talks later about how the green serpent was clearly only using something that would be used for stunning fish, which implicates that there are multiple ways to use the poison. Right. So then is there like this thought of me being too stunned to move because I'm scared I'm sending at you as in the form of poison or this thought of when it was so pain, I got it hurt really bad. I'm sending you that pain. Like, do I don't think- know. I, my head canon is that the green lost the society, his memories, whatever, the civilization part of him, and mm. only knew how to hunt or get mm. food, right? Fair. It takes some sort of conscious thought and effort to reformulate those toxins. Fair. And I feel like it is possible to share specific memories through those toxins and that's how like they they have to make a conscious effort to do that which is what Malkin is trying to do Mm. to reawaken probably to specific memories maybe of bards of the past you know of serpent singing and things like that recall the green's past life or his current life that he's forgotten but the I don't know sharing the feelings itself would come along with that I guess but it would probably be the whole memory because of the way that you know, skill kind of works and what we've seen with the serpents. Yeah. It's just sharing, sharing those specific memories as a whole. Mm, I see. But the toxin itself seems to burn a little bit, no matter what the memory is. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I guess I would also, I would just argue that I think Malkin is the only one that's able to, well, not like the only serpent ever, but in this specific incident is the only one able to bring about visions. I think that's what makes him special. I think that the eye, the serpent with the eyes on them, false eyes, false eyes. Thank you. Those are the ones that can bring memories to others. So I don't know if like everybody else has the potent enough to share something purposefully with other people. But the way that she says that someone had released toxins burning visions into her mind makes Mm -hmm. me think that anybody can do it because otherwise she'd say she sends Malkin's toxins burning visions into her mind. Yeah, but then what makes Malkin special? I think because he recalls more than the others. Mm. Okay. 
Okay. Because the way that the way that it seems to work to me is that yeah, there's like one she remembers or two or whatever that we right had lots of conversations However about many. already, <laughs> and they have all of the memories and they're around somewhere that you have to meet them. But the leaders of these tangles, these prophets, know enough to know when the time is right. All the other ones are just kind of like we have these this ancient lore mm-hmm. and we have this society, but. We don't really know. Okay. Yeah. I guess my other question though, because when I first read this, I read it as the visions burned into her mind directly relating to the next couple sentences of feeling like she's not even really carrying anything and she should just stop and give up. It doesn't matter because that feels really similar to glamour Mm. and how dragons fight. And how the serpents fight against humans even. Well, not fight, but like get them to jump in the water. I didn't read it directly like that, I I guess. I suppose you can, but to me it just makes more sense that this is a paragraph explaining her, the the difficulties Mm -hmm. of what she's going through right now. So there's, you know, there's tiny schools of fish, so you know you're going deep there's this rough water, so you can't really breathe it. Someone is releasing venom. And the way that she ends it with, surely it was the floor of the plenty itself she strove to lift. She longed to let go of her burden and shoot up where she could breathe. Doggedly, she struggled on. To me, when I read it, it felt like that was just her, you know, like a human would. Yeah, Just definitely. like, oh, I long to just let go of this burden and just let this person fall off a cliff. But I'm going to struggle on because I'm going to save them, you know? To me, that's what it felt like. But I suppose you could read it like it was a glamour and she's struggling through the the insinuation or the command to let go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But to me, like, that's the green doing that? I don't know. Yeah. Like, who would be doing that? I don't know. I don't know. But that, yeah, that was my thought. I was just like, oh, that's really strange. I wonder if that's part of that, but. I don't know. Maybe it's not. So they do struggle quite a bit, but suddenly Shriver is sensing cleaner water again. She unlids her eyes. She opens her mouth wide, flushing out her gills, tasting, you know, the toxins from Caesarea, the less disciplined from him and Malkin's once super potent toxins. And the green had released toxins too. They were thick and strong, but formulated mostly for the stunning of fish. Unpleasant as they were, they did not confound her. Her gaze met Caesarea's whirling glance. He gave a final shake of his mane, and the feebly struggling green grew limp. That's why I think that it's the poisons telling her to drop, because it wouldn't have been the green serpent, it would have been Caesarea, Telling the green, drop Malkin, like stop fighting, just let go. It's too heavy, it's too much. Leave it alone. Interesting. That so that was my thought. Is that okay. it wouldn't yeah. It's possible. Yeah. Who knows? Malkin is obviously exhausted, but he says, gently, gently, as we fought, he spoke to me. It was just curses at first, but then he demanded by what right I attacked him. I think he might still be awakened. So they are really struggling here. A lot of strength went into this fight, Mm -hmm. went into them trying to save the two fighting serpents as well. And they're trying to find a 
spot to just rest. They find an outcropping of rock that they struggle over to at the moment, but Malkin and the Green Serpent right now are pretty much just dead weight that Caesarea and Shriver have to drag over. And they are cradling this stranger in their midst, and they don't know if he's going to wake up violent or not. Right. So they want to relax, but they can't. Yeah, they themselves are so tired and ready just to go to sleep, and they can't. They have to wait to see what happens. And I think it's interesting because they go towards this upthrust of rocks. And again, it reminds me that somewhere in this area, there's that place that they stopped where I think it was Shriver had a memory of sitting on yeah those sunken the, elderling city yeah. a, a little bit ago i mean they've probably moved on from then because time has passed i yeah. think that was in spring <laughs> but hear me out they're traveling following boats around or slavers sure. so they could be back in the same spot could be but if they've been following a similar one it's been three months and i don't know if that's enough time to make a trip back and forth i guess i don't know it's possible, I suppose. Possible. But I just thought it might be, maybe, maybe it's the same rock that they got the memory of when they were <laughs> dragons on. And here it's just rocks. But who knows? There are rocks in the ocean that don't mean anything. <laughs> I just thought it'd be cool and fit my little theory about them, like more su- subtle signs of them forgetting. But who knows? So... All the other serpents have kind of watched this struggle and Shriver is obviously very concerned about how they are going to react as well. Do they think they're going to eat the green and therefore the rest of the serpents won't care to fall on them and attack them as well for food? Who knows? And Malkin was obviously exhausted, but... He massaged the green serpent with his coils, anointing him with the small drops of toxin he could muster, saying, Who are you? You were a minstrel once, and an excellent one. Once you had a memory that could hold thousands of melodies and the words of those songs. Reach for it. Tell me your name. Just your name. She wanted to tell him to stop wasting his strength, but could not summon the energy to do so. It was obviously futile. It did not seem to her that the green serpent was even conscious. She wondered how long Malkin would insist on trying. Did any of them have the reserves to do this now and still catch up with the provider tomorrow? Malkin's actions might have cost them their last chance at survival. Teller, the green muttered. His gills fluttered a moment. My name is Teller. A rippling shudder ran the length of his body. He suddenly twined his body about Malkin's and held tight as if a strong current threatened to sweep him away. Teller, he cried out. Teller, Teller, I am Teller. He lidded his eyes and lowered his head. Teller, he muttered quietly. He was exhausted. Trevor tried to feel some sense of triumph. Malkin had reawakened this one, but for how long? Would he help them in their quest or simply become one more drain on their resources? Quick question. Do you think Teller likes magic? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Maybe Pen is along, ride, along for the ride as well. Pen is one of the other dragons. <laughs> All jokes aside. Even, it, even with this triumph, she was just like, well, we just might die faster now. <laughs> yeah, there is no more of this like un, unerring faith in Malkin doing what's right, which we started out with. So 
it's really interesting to see the difference and how tired she is. But to be fair, they've been struggling to survive lately. They're starving and tired and weak. And so, of course, it's really hard to think of the good whenever you're thinking about logistics of what the good means now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But also, like, the green serpent is pretty healthy. So you'd think at the very least he could help them hunt fish and prey a little bit to regain their own strength. I don't know. Well, speaking of strong serpents, the ring of the other serpents watching have drawn closer and Caesarea and Trevor both try to look threatening a bit, but the largest of the serpents comes forward. A massive cobalt drew closer. He was easily a third longer than Caesarea and twice his bulk. His maw gaped wide, tasting the water for toxins. He suddenly threw back his head and brought his own mane to a full bristle. Kalaro, he bellowed, I am Kalaro. His jaws worked hungrily, gulping in the diluted toxins and pumping them over his gills. I remember, he proclaimed, I am Kalaro. At his bellow, some of the others retreated like startled fish. Others ignored his outburst. He turned his head to regard a much-scarred red in the group. And you are Silic. My friend, Silic. Once we were part of Zekri's tangle. Zekri's. What became of Zekri's? Where is the rest of our tangle? He advanced almost angrily on the scarred scarlet serpent, who continued to regard him with wide, empty eyes. Silic, where is Zekri's? Silic's blank stare roused his fury. The great blue suddenly wrapped his companion, squeezing him as if he were a whale to be drowned and devoured. His own ruff stood out full and poisonous. Toxins trailed in a cloud about them as they struggled. Where is Zekri's Silic? he demanded. When the Scarlet Serpent only struggled the harder, he squeezed him tighter. Silic, say your own name. Say, I am Silic. Say it now. He's going to kill him, Caesarea warned in a low, horrified voice. Stay out of it, Malkin rumbled low. Let it happen, Caesarea, for if he cannot awaken Silic, then he is better off dead. We all are. So, just to point out, again we have the motif of a name being important. It recalls one to themselves. And these dragons, by proclaiming their name, are gaining back that sense of who they are. And clearly they understand that, because here we have... Silic trying to get his friend to say his own name. Kalaro trying to get Silic to oh, say his name. Yeah. Silic is the the red who uh, yes, is not saying. You're right. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Kalaro is trying to get Silic to say his own name, and I find that really interesting that there's that aspect. It even in dragons, they are susceptible to losing themselves. Serpents. It's not. serpents are susceptible to losing themselves it's not just humans it's every creature that's thinking and has a mind yeah yeah definitely and we get a little bit of size comparison where there's a comparison to wrapping a whale and drowning it yeah i was i was wondering what kind of fish these 
serpents are eating. I mean, right? they, they eat schools of fish as well, but probably like tuna. And yeah, <laughs> like big fish. Yeah. <laughs> but now we know that they also can take down whales if they mm-hmm. so choose, which is kind of crazy because whales yeah. are pretty big. <laughs> yes. But I guess, I mean, whenever the humans are talking about the serpents, they say that sometimes the serpents are as long as the boat. Or longer. Or longer. And boats are pretty long. <laughs> so, so, I don't know. Interesting. We, Excuse me, they're ships, oh not boats. Goodness. Ships. <laughs> Sorry to all of our marine lovers out there. <laughs> but yeah, so we have this struggle going on. And, and Mulkin being like, if he kills them, that's better than him forgetting who he is forever. Yeah, which is pretty cold and Caesarea is a little bit shocked or sorry Shriver is pretty shocked by this response and Malkin won't look her in the eye it's he said what he said yep but the red serpent does concede in saying Silic my name is Silic Galaro loosed his coils but did not release him what has become of Zekris I don't know the edges of Silic's words were blurred as if speech were an effort. His statements came slowly as if he struggled to link words with thoughts. He forgot himself. One morning we awoke to find him gone. He abandoned his tangle. Soon after the others began to forget themselves. He shook his head angrily, a cloud of toxins spilling from his own ragged mane. I am Silic, he repeated be- bitterly. Silic the Friendless. Silic of no tangle. Silic of Malkin's tangle. Kalaro of Malkin's tangle, if you wish. Malkin's voice had regained some of its lost temper. His false eyes even gleamed gold briefly. Kalaro and Silic regarded him in silence briefly. Then Kalaro advanced on them, Silic still casually wrapped in his grasp. His eyes were huge and baleful. They spun blackly with hints of silver in their depths as he regarded the battered tangle he had been invited to join. Then he gravely bowed his great-maned head. Mulkin, he acknowledged him. He lapped a coil of himself about their anchoring rock and drew his friend in close to them. Carefully, lest he give offense, he intertwined with Caesarea, Shriver, and Mulkin. Kalaro of Mulkin's tangle greets you all. Silic of Mulkin's tangle echoed the battered scarlet serpent. So they have swelled their ranks by three new serpents, the green, the blue, and the red. Which, if I recall, is how many they lost in the beginning of the book? Maybe more? There were more. There were more. But there were at least six of them that broke off, right? I think so. I think so. I don't know. But yeah, they've... uh, They've regained some of them, and the serpents now at least have a sense of identity. And Caesarea's like, well, we can't rest rest long, but we need to get what rest we can before we catch up to the provider. And Malkin's like, no, we're not doing that. We're done with that. We're being serpents. We're going to go hunt for our food like true serpents do. When we do not hunt food, we hunt for one who remembers. We have been given a final chance. We must not squander it. So this is the last chance, pretty much, that we are, we're seeing here. And Malkin knows that. 
And I think the other serpents know that too, at least Shriver and Caesarea. They're kind of at the their wits end. They're at their strengths end. And they need they need to find their goal. They need to get strong and hunt, yes, and survive, but they need to find one who remembers to renew all of their memories because they are forgetting who they are. Yeah. And they need to be able to figure out what happens next and what they're fighting for. And this is kind of, in the grander scheme of things, it's still very detached from the rest of the plots. Mm -hmm. We see small connections coming in through some of the interactions with, you know, Althea and Brashen and Kennet and especially Vivacia and Wintrow with these serpents. Mm -hmm. But it's still kind of detached. And then later on we get this, a really weird plot line of Vivacia becoming Bolt, the dragon, mm. and then her commanding the the serpents and Kennet being king of the pirates because he has a army of serpents at his command destroying yeah. ships. So it gets real weird later. <laughs> but for now, it's it's just a small group kind of struggling to survive. Yeah, which... Is kind of how everybody's left at this point in time in the book. All the groups that we're following, they're they're struggling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess maybe not Kenneth. <laughs> True. I guess he is struggling. He's turned because, the corner. Yeah, he's turned the corner. And he was struggling because he lost a leg. But other than that, things are kind of going his way anyway. So, so I won't necessarily count him in that struggling. But yeah, we definitely have this weird group that doesn't seem to match if you're a first-time reader but as a second-time reader you really see this is kind of the beginning of the end yeah (laughs) this is the uptick this is what's left and i i do find it interesting that they were able to awaken three people that's or three serpents sorry yeah i think it was mostly because of the green singing that did a lot because at the end of that it says that some of the serpents looked around trying to recall something. And then there was a lot of toxins released by Malkin and the Green and Caesarea and Trever, and the serpents followed that struggle, so they probably tasted some of the toxins and the ones that were very close to reawakening, Kalaro. It says that he's flushing his gills, having those toxins pass over his gills afterwards when he's talking to them too so that probably happened inadvertently but just was enough of a trigger fair definitely i also i do think that maybe you are more right about how toxins work because silic only starts talking again and recalling who he is whenever kalaro puts toxins in his face yeah so maybe Maybe it has nothing to do with what happens, but... All of them have a little bit of that same kind of memory sharing or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But it is still a a precarious place to leave off and... Right. You know. (laughs) But they have a direction. They have... Well, not a direction, but they have a goal in mind. True. And... A new sense of self-worth as well that Malkin is giving them. Like, we don't, we are serpents. We don't depend on the largesse of anything. We're not going to follow the provider. Right. We're hunting as befits serpents. 
Yeah. And we're going to survive and do this. Yeah. They're going to do it. Yeah. So I feel like it's easy food following slave ships for them. However, it's just easier to lose your memories and just get complacent in those things. And maybe that's the deterioration that we saw with Shriver and Caesarea and Mulkin is that, yes, they were getting fed, but they don't have a purpose. They're just following to get food. Yeah, definitely. And I also was wondering if maybe the food source itself is important. Although, because I was like, well, you know, maybe the humans have something to do with diluting what they are because what humans know of serpents is that they're beasts. Oh, yeah, maybe. But like, I don't know. I yeah. feel like how much more humans have way more memories and experiences than fish would, I assume. Not because fish don't have experiences, but <laughs> but theirs are limited to the ocean. Um, I don't know. So mm. I was just, I don't know, probably has nothing to do with maybe it doesn't yeah. affect, but it could. Thank you so much for tuning in this week and listening to this chapter. We're coming into the second part of this book. I'm not sure if there's a full year. We might, since this is chapter 13, I'm assuming we're going to have an autumn and winter as well. But this is the start of summer here. If you have questions about any of the serpent stuff or our podcast in general, or if you have thoughts on the serpents, please let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com. We always read all of your emails. We might not reply to all of them, but we'll try to talk about most of them here as well. And you can comment or message us on any of our social medias. Same thing goes there. Is Fitz Happy at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, on threads as well. So please let us know what you're thinking. Thanks so much. All right, now we're going to talk about some things you guys have brought to our attention. First and foremost, we want to talk about a Facebook comment we got from Bastion that says that Bastion does have his own live ship. Or the Trell family. Yeah, a little bit of a correction, because I think we said that we don't think that the Trells have a live ship. Yes, and this is for episode 167. Yeah, I think we were talking about him getting disowned. Yeah, chapter 12, part one. Um, It's when Brashen is in the pirate's lair talking about how, yeah, I don't know, he doesn't know anything about live ships. And then we were trying to decide if he actually wouldn't have known anything about the secrets of the live ships. Because as far as we know, his family does not have a live ship. And Yeah. yeah, so we were discussing that as though he did not have one, but thanks to Bastion, we know he does. But it is unclear if any of the Trells from Brashen's family are actually the ones on the ship. His immediate family, yeah. yeah like, Serwin just... will inherit it, but is he actually going to sail? We don't right. know. It's just yeah. not talked about. And Bastion thinks that maybe they just own it and have, like, cousins sail it or something like that. Right. But either way, there is a live ship of some sort. So thank you, Bastion, for that correction. Yeah. And I'm very excited to look out for that. Hopefully they name the live ship. I don't think they do. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) But I wish they would. I want to know all the live ship names. Just an idea of how many there are would be nice. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, thank you, Bastion. And then the other thing we're going to talk about today is a very interesting 
email we got from listener Anna, and they sent in a defense of Sa'adar. Yeah, so we talk about Sa'adar mainly from Wintro's point of view. Yes. Because that's how we see him mainly. And so we have called him a villain a few times, like a tertiary villain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Anna has a little bit of a defense of that, which I think is very nice. And it's good to have that nuanced approach to him, just looking at Sa Adar from a objective point of view rather than Wintro's obviously skewed point of view. Right. So Anna brings up that... Sa'adar was, is in a spot of fighting for survival. And especially when it comes to Gantry's death, Sa'adar didn't have time to worry about whether or not Gantry was a good person. He had to make a quick decision to eliminate the threat that was in front of him to get himself free. Yeah. And so Sa'adar to Anna is not a villain, but is painted as a villain from Kenneth's and Wintrow's eyes because he's inconvenient to their plans. Yes. He's just a product of his situation and doing the best he can. Obviously, he has some flaws to him, and he's very manipulative. However, he's not like an evil dude. Right. He's not trying to be a villain. And also, Anna brings up the fact that Saw, of course, Sa'adar thinks that this ship belongs to him because that is what he knows of Kennet. Kennet is the king of the pirates who comes along and frees slave ships and then gives the ship to the slavers or to the slaves that were previously on the ship. It happens in all the stories. That's how it works. That's what happens. And so, of course, he's doubling down on this trying to give himself more of a of worth and value. This is something that could set him up in life as a free person. Yeah, this is the only part of the argument that I really don't jive with. <laughs> and I think I've talked about it before, but I don't think the innocent angle of like, oh, it's expected, so of course he expects it. You know, that's part of the mm -hmm. story is really holds weight the longer this story goes and the more he still wants it because he's a freed slave. He's not entitled to it. And he's been said, no, kind of is keeping the ship and he's still like, everyone knows this is my ship. Yeah. So I, I think it started out like that. And I think I've, I've explained this thought of mine before that. Yes, it started out like that, but I think slavery really, really changed him and traumatized him and exacerbated some of the issues. And Anna does say that too, that the slavery does exacerbate some of the things that he might have thought before and just made it worse in himself. Right. But I think he's going a little bit crazy over the ship and, you know, justice over Kyle and things like that. Yeah. I think my main dislike of that argument stems from then why isn't he asking for a different ship why does it have to be this ship if he thinks that he deserves a ship because he was freed and that's what Kenneth does then why isn't he asking for a ship instead why like why does it have to be this ship Kenneth has claimed this ship Kenneth is the king who freed him so 
why does it matter that it's this ship versus any other ship? That's where I think it isn't about getting a ship. It's about the live ship in particular. Right. And he does explain it to Wintro of like, this was a death ship. Only a priest of the life God saw can make it not a death ship and worthy vessel. You know, yeah. he wants to be the one to do it. And he thinks that anything else is sacrilege or something. I don't know. Right. But that explanation falls apart again with something that Anna wrote in as well, saying that Anna's biggest criticism of Sadar is Sadar's use of religion to further his goals. A Susan B. Anthony quote comes to Anna's mind say, that says, I distrust those people who know so well what God wants them to do because I notice it always coincides with their own desires. But as a traveling priest of Sa who sat in judgment of others, I am inclined to believe this trait may have preceded his enslavement, but was exacerbated by it. So, Sa Adar is obviously a man very full of himself and his own judgments and believes that he has the moral righteousness on his side. Yeah. And with Anna's and our belief that slavery exacerbated that, his his refusal to admit that he doesn't have an actual claim to the ship uh-huh. really just comes across as this man is going crazy. Yeah. And you know, I think I really respect that Anna wrote in to fight against the villain narrative because I think it is, he is a sympathetic character. And I think especially thinking about the death of, first of all, all the people on board and all the like previous crew, and Gantry in particular, I don't feel as sympathetic to Gantry's death. I mean, I do in that it affects Wintro a lot and Vivacia, and like Gantry doesn't seem like he was that bad, but Gantry still is willingly the second in command on a slave ship. Like that is a choice Gantry made. Whether yeah. or not he likes slavery he still agreed to become part of the system and that makes him just as complicit and so in my mind it kind of doesn't matter if he was a good slave owner or a bad slave owner he was still was a slave owner sort of argument that's what that's what anna is saying as well that if you viewed that particular scene or gantry's death as a plot point from the slave's point of view it wouldn't be as tragic (laughs) yeah and like i don't know so i think it is it is really interesting how, number one, it can be seen as sympathetic through Hobbes' writing. Just we're able to put ourselves in the shoes of these characters who were more affected and feel the moral gray area a little bit harder. But yeah, I think it is it is really important to bring forward also the viewpoint of Gantry still wasn't really that good of a person. And as sad as it, death isn't a great answer in any circumstance. Like I don't advocate for people killing those who are wrong, but like he still wasn't innocent either. It wasn't saw Adar just killing a random for no reason. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think we could be nicer to saw Adar. I probably won't be, but that's also because I really dislike, I think that's my own personal thing. Dislike his fanaticism. Yeah. I don't like how he does use his religion as a club. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. In real life or in <laughs> or in books. So Yeah, it, it is a very good thing to bring up 
a nuanced look at Sa'adar because depending on your point of view, he could be correct, he could be crazed, he could be a villain, he could be just a man trying to survive. In terms of our story with Wintrow at the heart of it, he kind of gets in the way a lot. And not saying that, you know, Kenneth's point of view is a great <laughs> right great moral guidepost you know and Sadar is obviously a villain because he goes against Kenneth's view but <laughs> that's kind of the way that Wintro skews <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> and that's the way that I'm probably most likely gonna look at things yeah. to be fair I don't think Wintro thinks that Sadar is in the wrong because it's against Kenneth I think Wintrow recognizes, number one, that Sadar is using his religion as an excuse and it's not right. a real valid argument. And number two, Sadar does not understand what a live ship is and clearly is more bent on revenge than anything else with his insistence of killing Kyle instead of right. like not being a judge because Saw alone can judge. I don't know. So I think it's more coming from a place of Wintro knows that if he were to side with Sadar, not only would he die because Kenneth's going to kill him and his dad, but his dad is going to die because Sadar will kill Kyle. And his ship would probably be mistreated. Yeah, and his, his ship would be mistreated. So I think, yeah, I would argue against your statement that it's because of Kenneth. It's more yeah. other things that happen to align with Kenneth in this instance. <laughs> Thank you very much, Anna. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. We really appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who reaches out. We really like hearing from you guys and giving us nuanced points to talk about and things that we're not thinking of. So thank you guys. See you next week. Bye.